0: Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District I've of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm to
3: this is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 491. I am your host. Tony C Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. A great story today. If you like science fiction, man, this one's lovely. Absolutely fantastic. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is the main fiction and it is Apache Charlie and the Pyramids of Hex by Alan Steele. Then it is the end of the month. So we have our Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. That is all coming in the day show. As ever, I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So like I say, Alan Steele's story, and Alan Steele for me is a fan of, you can just tell, a fan of science fiction before even a writer, do you know what I mean? And he just captures for me an essence of science fiction that I love, do you know what I mean? And... The more you read, I don't know if anyone's, you know, read Alan Steele, please go out there and get some Alan Steele stories. I'll give you a little bio on him as well. Alan Steele has published 18 novels and nearly 100 short stories. His work has received numerous accolades, including three Hugo Awards and has been translated worldwide, mainly into languages he can't read. He lives in Western Massachusetts with his wife Linda and a continual procession of adopted dogs. He collects vintage science fiction books and magazines, spacecraft model kits, and dreams. And that's it. Do you know what I mean? And please check out Alan Steele. You know, one thing you kind of do if you want like a nice summer read, go and pick up an Alan Steele book. I read about. Oh, I think when it first came out last year, Arkwright. Now, this is, for me, a truly, truly essential science fiction story. Do you know what I mean? And it starts off, the beauty of it, it starts off right at that kind of... And it's, it, it even brings in classic science fiction writers in our real lives into the story at the very beginning of the book. And the first World Fair Science Fiction Convention... Well, I forget when it where it kicked off or whatever, when it kicked off. But that first one which has went down in history, anyways, it starts the book and the story start from there, then it just expands, man. It just goes right into the future. Please get a hold of that. If you can. Do you know what I mean? Just a fantastic... And if you want to kind of delve more into Alan Steele's Coyote series. Do you know what I mean? That was just... I was just lost in that. I took them through Audible. And just fantastic. And I've just today got the... Alan Steele's got a new one out. Avengers of the Moon. A Captain Future novel. And I've got that, like you say. I'm going on holiday in a couple of weeks' time as well. So I've got that for for my little kind of treat to, um, to have and so looking forward to it, you know what I mean, and, if you, like I say, try and check out Alan Steele, he kind of cut his teeth, with the short stories, you know, the coyote short stories, and that whole world, you know, and, and that's where this one, comes from as well, just a lovely story, The story is narrated by Kyle Akers and Kyle A is a voice actor from Kansas City, Missouri. He has contributed to podcasts like Pseudopod, Chilling Tales for Dark Night and the No Sleep Podcast. He also produces and performs in his own improv podcast called The Counselor. Prior to voice acting, Kyle toured the country as a professional musician singing and playing bass guitar for the electric pop band Antennas Up. Which enjoyed success through several national television show placements and commercials. Since then, Kyle has dabbled in long form improv and audio production while performing weekly or weekend gigs with Kansas City cover band The Magnetics. And Kyle, listen. <laughs> with that narration, please come back to Starship Sover. That's that just if we could have a few more from you, that would be fantastic. Jeremy, sort this, sort Kyle out. So, the Starship Sova is, very Proud present,
1: Apache Charlie and the Pentagons of Hex by Alan M. Steele. In all the ages, there have been people like us. We've always been there, existing on the edge of society, invisible yet omnipresent, neglected yet never completely ignored. We've been called different things, bohemians, vagrants, gypsies, Hobos, tramps, ramblers, hippies, dropouts, drifters, and the lost generation. On Hex, we were called joyriders. I was one. And so was my friend Apache Charlie. This is how we went in search of one of the pentagons of Hex, and where that strange, obsessive quest took him. The holy fools were visiting the Sajan habitat when Apache Charlie learned the location of the Danwi pentagon. Their habitat was located almost three-quarters of the way up Hex's northern hemisphere, nine hexagons north by northwest of Terrania, the human habitat. It doesn't sound like a great distance when you consider there's something like six trillion hexes in Hex, an approximate figure. No one knows the precise number except the Danwi, and, as usual, they're not telling. But once you take into account that each hex has a perimeter of 6,000 miles, and do the math, you can see that's pretty a far piece for us to have traveled particularly by tram but a joyrider will make the trip if it means seeing something few if any people have seen before so when fracked up freddie our navigator learned from his counterpart in the gang of idiots the 19-digit coordinate code that would program a tram to take us there naturally we boarded the next tram out of tyrania and off we went to meet the sajan why because none of us had ever met these particular aliens because the idiots told us that the Sajan of Gliese 581C were friendly, air-breathing, and open to encountering other races inhabiting Hex. And especially because the government didn't want anyone except the Janus Company making contact with other races, which made it more fun. Joyriders generally abhorred the Janus Company, particularly guys like Freddy and Genghis Bob, who'd actually once worked for them. So there we were, and what amounted to a town square except that So far as we could tell, the Sajan didn't have permanent dwellings of any sort. Wherever a bunch of them gathered at any one time, that was home. And we were doing our damnedest to entertain what amounted to a race of sentient medicine balls. Which is pretty much what a sajan looked like. A leathery, blue-green sphere about three feet in diameter, squatting atop three tripodal legs with three arms equilaterally spaced about their circumference. Their heads were neckless hemispheres, ringed by unblinking, button-like eyes, and with a mouth on either side, one for eating, the other for breathing and speaking. No doubt about it, the Sajan were weirder than weird, even for a place inhabited by the likes of the hajad, the Nord, and the Koru. Say what you will about them, though, but at least they weren't xenophobes. They didn't seem to mind very much when a small band of humans arrived at the tram station, and traveled down the escalator into one of the six biopods that made up their hex, the interior of which appeared to be a vast, open meadow of high grass, with groves of something that looked like red asparagus, ten feet tall. There was a clearing not far from the escalator, and when some of the natives came waddling over to greet us, we figured that this was as good a place as any to, well, do what joyriders do, meet the locals and make friends as best we could or at least not do anything that might get us chased out, or worse. For the holy fools, that meant being sort of a traveling roadshow. Charlie, Sue Me Too, Marie Joanna, and I packed our musical instruments and began warming up the crowd, while Freddie and Genghis Bob saw about using our Hajjad translator disc to find out who was in charge and if it was all right if we stuck around for a little while. The latter wasn't a problem. The Sajan liked us. We were pretty goofy, I suppose, but entertaining all the same The band opened with a handful of traditional earth songs Good Lovin', Waltz and Matilda, Louie Louie, and so forth With Charlie and Marie on guitar Sue on tambourine and vocals and yours truly on harmonica Then Sue broke out her cards and began showing them a bit of sleight of hand The Sajan didn't understand the songs, but they loved the card tricks And it didn't take long for them to accept us as guests The breakthrough came, though when the local Sajan chieftain introduced us to another species native to their homeworld, small creatures known as Kalits. With long tails and wide eyes that gave them a perpetually startled appearance, they resembled hairless lemurs except for the sucker pads on their feet that enabled them to cling to the top of a Sajan's head. Or humans, if you let them. Which is exactly what Apache Charlie did once Fracked Up Freddy relayed to us what the Sajan chieftain had explained to him. The Khalites were natural telepaths, and very good at allowing different races to understand one another. Once each individual had a Kalit perched on their head, the creatures would establish a telepathic rapport and transfer images and impressions, rather than words, from one mind to another. This seemed like a more efficient means of communication than even Hajjad translator discs, which, like alien tram coordinates, was something the Janus Company did their best to keep out of the hands of joy joyriders. So Charlie let the chieftain gently coax a khalit onto his shoulders, where it climbed up his neck to the top of his head and perched like a bizarre cap with oversized eyes. Once the fools stopped laughing and Charlie got over the ticklish feeling he got from the khalit's feet, he began conversing to the Sajan leader. Sure enough, Charlie and the chieftain understood each other better than if they'd been using translator discs. And then Charlie did what he'd always done, whenever we met a new race with whom we managed to make friends. He asked the chieftain if he knew the location of the pentagons that Don Wee had built in Hex. Charlie had been seeking this knowledge for as long as I'd belonged to the tribe. It was something of an obsession for him. He had made this particular query so many times, of so many different races, that the rest of us started referring to it as the question. The aliens, he asked, usually didn't know what he was talking about, or didn't have an answer, but on this occasion... Oh my god! Charlie's eyes went wide. Oh my God! Oh my God! Sue was sitting nearby. She stopped shuffling her cards for another trick to peer at her mate. Charlie? What's going on? What did- Quick! He began urgently snapping his fingers. Someone get this down! He saw me standing across from him. Jack! Write this down! Fast! I didn't ask twice, but instead yanked out my pad and created a file. Okay, shoot! Charlie closed his eyes took a deep breath, then began to recite. From right to left, triangle, vertical line, vertical line, square, diamond, pyramid, dot, square, vertical line, square, diamond. And so on, one we geometric digit after another, until he reached the end of the nineteen-figure string that, once entered into a tram's control pad, would send it straight, to the hex habitat for which it was designated. When Charlie was done, he slowly let out his breath and looked at Sue and me. That's it, he said softly. That's what we've been looking for. The nearest Pentagon. What do you mean, we? I asked. Oh, no. Sue was already shaking her head. Charlie, don't. Don't even think about it. Oh, yes. He was grinning like a maniac. We're most definitely going there. And as soon as he said this, I knew we were. Or he was, at least. The first time I saw Hex, scratch that, my experience was not that much different from anyone else. Everyone saw Hex the same way that first time. From a ship making the jump from 47 Ursa Majoris to HD 76700. In my case, it was through a starboard porthole of a freighter, the Coyote Queen, as it came through one of the six star bridges the we had established in equidistant orbit one and a half AUs from the primary. In my case, though, I was planning to jump ship as soon as it arrived. Hex had been called a Dyson sphere, but that's a misnomer. Freeman Dyson never described anything like Hex when he wrote his famous letter to a scientific journal hypothesizing very large constructs an alien race might built about a star. And indeed, Dr. Dyson himself disowned the concept that bore his name. In fact, Hex was like nothing anyone imagined. Anyone human, that is. Only the Don the greatest engineers in the galaxy, could have conceived something like this, let alone devote thousands of years to creating the damn thing. Build a cylindrical habitat, a biopod a thousand miles long and a hundred miles wide. Pretty big, right? You could fit a small continent into something like that. Make the roof transparent so as to allow sunlight to come in and furnish it with whatever ecosystem you desire. Rivers, deserts, snowfields, rainforests, you name it, along with the appropriate atmosphere. Next, build five more. Then arrange them in a circle to form a hexagon. Five are habitable, and the sixth contains the complex biomachinery needed to make the habitat ecologically self-sufficient. Connect the biopods with a high-speed maglev tram system that runs along their outer rims and through their connecting nodes, and you've got something with approximately the usable surface area of a small planet. Now, build approximately 6 trillion of these hexes, collectively containing 36 trillion biopods. Each hex is as different as you want it to be. Bind them together as an enormous sphere two AUs or 186 million miles in diameter with a circumference of 584,537,600 miles surrounding a G-class star much like Earth's sun. Supply power to the habitat through the vast network of photovoltaic panels you've arranged along the electrically charged cables holding each hex grid and furnishing the magnetic fields necessary to deflect cosmic radiation. These arrays also function as solar sails, to provide stability when you rotate the sphere on its axis, thereby allowing the centripetal force to give the hexagons interior surface gravity, ranging from 2 g's at the equator to microgravity at the poles, connect each habitat's tram system so that they form the greatest mass transit network ever, and establish those star bridges I mentioned at equidistant points 14,602,140 miles from one another then invite all the star-faring races of the galaxy to move in. Would you like to establish your next interstellar colony in our system? Please, feel free to do so. We love company, and we have lots of room. That's Hex. All those statistics and numbers oversimplify what I saw from the freighter. At first glance, it looked like an enormous dust cloud, spherical with distinct margins, copper-hued and not completely solid, with a sun shining in its center. It filled the porthole through which I was gazing, and over the course of the next few days it grew larger and larger, gradually losing its curvature until it no longer resembled a sphere at all, but a wall of hexagons stretched endlessly across space. During the week it took for the Coyote Queen to reach Tarania, located about halfway up Hex's northern hemisphere, the captain became increasingly put out with me. According to him, I was a lazy, good-for-nothing bum who had no business being aboard a freighter. And if I didn't shape up and start doing my share of the work, he intended not only to fire me as soon as we returned to Coyote, but also make sure I was blackballed from any other ship in the Coyote Federation Merchant Marine. I didn't care. When I talked my way into a job as a cargo loader, it had never been my intent to remain aboard the Queen any longer than it took to hitch a ride to Hex. And indeed, just as soon as the freighter slid into the vast harbor within one of the half-dozen spherical nodes connecting the biopods, each hexagon was furnished with a node that served as a spaceport, I jumped ship, pausing just long enough to grab my duffel bag. I skipped a paycheck, but that was beside the point. The job was just to get to Hex without having to buy passage aboard a commercial liner, an expense I couldn't afford. What I'd done was totally illegal, of course. From the moment I arrived, I was an outlaw. But once I joined the Holy Fools, Apache Charlie gave me my tribal nickname. My traveling name, as we're called by joy riders. What was on my birth certificate became a thing of the past. From then on, I was Ship Jump Jack. That evening, all Charlie wanted to talk about were the pentagons. Or rather, the prospect of the Holy Fools undertaking a journey to one of these things, so we could see it for ourselves. The Sajan had been sufficiently entertained by our little roadshow to let us camp out near the escalator. They even brought us dinner. Once Freddie and Marie tested it with our biochemistry kit to make sure nothing they'd given us would accidentally poison us, we each tried a bit. The Sajan were vegetarian, so that made things easier. The raw lichen was inedible, but the vegetable soup wasn't bad. And so was something that looked like ravioli and tasted like chicken? Yes, it's true. Every alien culture has something that tastes like chicken. The Sajan have a deep fear of open flames that made us wonder how they'd ever developed a technological culture, so we couldn't start a campfire. Instead, we set up our lanterns in the middle of the clearing between our tents, and once the photosensitive barrel ceiling that comprised the sky of every biopod on Hex polarized and the habitat went dark, we discussed what Charlie had discovered. Of course, we've got to see it. Charlie sat cross-legged on the ground, Sue's head nestled in his lap. No one has ever seen a pentagon. We'll be the first. Tall and muscular, with dark, shoulder-length hair, Charlie looked like the Native American he actually wasn't. Joy Joyriders assumed traveling names to make it hard for the government to prosecute us, so the one he picked wasn't even his own. A ravenous reader, he'd found his nom de plume of all places in a 19th century Western pulp novel, Buffalo Bill's Featherweight, or Apache Charlie, the Indian Athlete. He thought this was pretty funny for some reason, we knew very little of his past, other than he'd been on Hex for longer than the rest of us, was one of the original joyriders, and loathed the Janus Company. On the other hand, Sue Me Too really was of Asian descent, and Sue was her first name. She'd once been a lawyer until she got tired of everyone automatically assuming that she was a bloodsucking leech, so she'd pulled the plug on her career, sold everything she had, and migrated to Hex, where she'd met Charlie and started a new life as a joyrider. No one has ever seen a pig fly either, Freddy said. That doesn't mean we should put our lives at risk to see one. I wouldn't know about that, Marie sat on the ground beside his air chair, replacing a string on her guitar. If you could actually promise me that a pig had wings... That's just it, Bob chimed in. It's like, you know, okay, someone has told us that a pig can fly, but is it flying because it has wings? Or because someone's taken a ham and thrown it across the room? (laughs) That's a waste of a good ham, Freddy replied, and everyone got a laugh out of that. Fracked up Freddy didn't always get around in an air chair. Before he'd come to Hex, he'd been a navigator aboard a freighter that had regularly traveled to other worlds of the Talus, the Galactic Coalition to which Coyote, but not Earth, belonged. But some horrible shipboard accident, we never learned the details, he didn't want to talk about it, nearly killed him and left his body mutilated. So he dropped out of the Merchant Marine and migrated to Hex. He was our tribe's navigator, responsible for keeping track of the complex Don coordinates that allowed us to hitch rides aboard the trams. Yeah, but I'd give a lot to see a pig with wings, Bob said. If it didn't, well, I'd still eat the ham. A long time ago, as a younger man, he'd fought in the revolution that had overthrown Earth's control of the original colonies on Coyote. He eventually became tired of being a soldier, though. So... Once Hex was discovered, he'd resigned from the colonial militia and come out here for a fresh start. You'd eat anything, Marie said, giving Bob a reason to turn red and look away. Marie was the youngest, the prettiest, and the most free-spirited of our tribe. Her family had relocated from Coyote to Hex when she was a teenager, and had been among the original founders of Nueva Italia. She wasn't content to live on a hemp farm with Mom and Dad, though, so instead ran off to become a joyrider. She was sleeping with Bob, which was a little strange considering that he was old enough to be her father. On the other hand, the brief affair she and I had didn't pan out, so who was I to judge? Eventually she might return to the farm, marry some guy, and have a barn full of kids, but not quite yet. Joyriders were more than just people who used the tram system for our own purposes. We were the ones who didn't fit in. No matter which tribe you belonged to, the fools, the tram hoppers, the useful gang of idiots, the wicked Big Johnsons, if you were there, it was because you were a misfit wherever you came from, and exploring Hex was your way of cutting ties to what most people regarded as a normal way of life. Look, we know there's a Pentagon, Charlie said, trying to get the conversation back on topic, and it's not far from where we are now. He looked over at Freddy. You check the map. Show him what you found. With a sigh, Freddy moved aside his empty plate so that he could unfold his comp from the left armrest of his armchair. He ran his fingers across the screen and a small wireframe hollow of hex was projected before him. Freddy zoomed in until one quadrant in the northern hemisphere took its place. He typed a command and two tiny lights appeared. One at the equator, the other far above it to the northeast. Here's where we are, he pointed to the light in the northeast, and here's the Pentagon, pointing to the light at the equator. He expanded the image to show that it did indeed have five sides instead of the usual six. If the Sajan gave us the correct coordinates and the Dan Wee map is accurate, then yeah, it's not that far away. Only about 70 to 80 hexes, depending on which route you take. 70 to 80 hexes? Bob stared at him. And you call that close? That's... His lips moved silently as he performed a mental calculation. Freddie saved him the effort. Somewhere between 42 and 48,000 miles, he said quietly, not smiling could be a little less depending on which course the tram takes to get there but probably not much it would be the longest ride any tribe has ever taken except for random riders sue added and if they don't call for help no one hears from them again an uncomfortable silence every so often joyrider wannabes who had no idea what they were doing would board a tram and enter a random combination of 19 Dunwe figures Unless no hexagon had these figures as coordinates, then the tram would take them to somewhere no one had ever been before. And that could be anywhere on Hex. A habitat with an environment instantly lethal to any human who tried to enter it, or whose inhabitants were as hostile as the Tarak, or simply so far away that you might wind up on the opposite side of Hex, 186 million miles from where you started. You might even starve to death before you got where you were going, if you plotted a route that neglected to provide stops along the way. Those clueless enough to do this were called random riders. Unless they carried a long-range radio and used it to call for a rescue, something no self-respecting joy rider would do, since it meant a stiff fine and possibly jail time, they were seldom seen again. I don't understand, Marie said. What's so interesting about pentagons? Didn't they teach you anything at school, I added, and then winked. Oh, that's right, you dropped out, didn't you? She responded with a one-finger gesture that was not an invitation to take her literally. Freddy answered the question. When the Montero expedition found hex, Captain Carson's people thought it was entirely comprised of hexagons. It wasn't until later that engineers studying this place corrected this assumption. In order for a sphere to be built from six-sided hexagons, five-sided pentagons, if only a few, had to be inserted so that they could all fit together. So mathematicians did the calculations they found that it would take just seven pentagons to make it work. Just seven? Uh Uh-huh, Charlie said. One at the North Pole, one at the South Pole, and five more along the equator, equidistantly spaced every 72 degrees of arc, making them the rarest habitats on Hex. Until now, Freddy continued, we've never known exactly where any of the equatorial pentagons are located. Remember, the coordinate system was devised so it doesn't follow any deliberate organized pattern so as to confuse anyone who might try to get from one hexagon to the next simply by figuring out the order. That helps assure the privacy of colonies that don't want uninvited visitors. So even if we've always known there's five pentagons at the equator, we've never learned their precise locations or seen them for ourselves. Except from orbit, I said. But even then they look pretty much the same as any of the hexes surrounding them. And so far as anyone can tell, the ones that the north and south poles are just structural braces without any habitats. But the equatorial pentagons are inhabited, Charlie insisted. Survey flyovers have shown that. They've got nodes, support cables, sail cells, everything you'd expect to find in a normal hexagon. Yeah, all that in 2G gravity, too. Freddy wasn't impressed, which means that, even if we could reach it, our weight would double. How much do you weigh in 1G, Charlie? About 200 pounds? How'd you like to weigh 400? We'd get heavier and heavier the closer we got, Bob said. And our bodies would have to work harder, he frowned. I don't know about you young'uns, but I don't think this old heart of mine could handle that kind of stress. And you're not stuck in this thing, Freddy's gnarled hand swatted the armrests of his chair. Okay, all right. I understand, Charlie held up his hands. It's just that, you know, the reason why we do this is because we want to see Hex, and not just the places the company lets people go. If we could reach a Pentagon, we might find... His voice trailed off. What? Sue asked, looking up at her lover. What do you think we'll find? Charlie didn't say anything for a moment. I don't know, he said at last. But I bet it'll be amazing. It should have ended there, but it didn't. One of the things that often surprises people who visit Hex is how ordinary, how boring, really, life there really is. As soon as the first human colony, Nueva Italia, was established in Terrania, there was a stampede of immigrants who wanted to establish a new colony beyond the confines of the Coyote Federation. As though Cody, which by then had a global population of just over a million, was in danger of becoming overcrowded. But folks are always attracted to that which is new. And Hex, with its endless summer and tessellated sky, was stranger than anyone had ever imagined. As Sumi too liked to say, though, there's no place humans can go where laws and lawyers won't soon follow. Not that it was entirely our fault. When the we built Hex and invited the rest of the Talis to colonize it, they imposed a few stipulations of their own, and one of them was that no colony could interfere with the affairs of another. Naturally, the Montero expedition managed to do just that, when some of its members accidentally took a tram to the hexagon inhabited by the primitive Turok, where they very nearly lost their lives and had to be rescued. After that, the Hajjad humankind's closest allies in the Talus informed Captain Carson and her people of the Donwe rules, which they'd have to abide by if humans wanted to establish a presence on Hex. So, when Andromeda Carson became Tyrania's first colonial governor, one of the first things she did was to use that particular rule as the main excuse for striking an exclusive trade agreement with the Janus Company. Ostensibly, the purpose behind the deal was to prevent further mishaps by allowing only one company to make contact and negotiate trade agreements with other races inhabiting Hex, in actual practice, it was nepotism of the worst kind. Carson got Janice to put her son Sean, who, ironically, had led the ill-fated Tarak party, on the company's board of directors. And in exchange, she wrote laws that authorized only licensed traders and explorers to go anywhere on Hex beside Terrania. So most people who came to Hex thinking they were going to see a world 186 million miles in diameter soon discovered that they were effectively confined to a collection of small towns in a habitat only a few thousand miles wide. But Terrania contained ten stations on the tram network connecting it to all the other hexes, not including the two leading to the sixth biopod, which was close to everyone except the Dunwee. And the local constables couldn't watch all of them all of the time. And the trams are very easy to use once you know how. Inevitably, people began sneaking aboard trams and plugging in coordinates they learned through the grapevine. This is how the Joyriders came to be. The company considered us... Well, go back and read the list. And perhaps we were what they said we were. But when it came right down to it, we were just folks who were naturally curious, and had a low tolerance for boredom. And that may be the main reason why the Holy Fools were doomed the moment Apache Charlie learned the Pentagon coordinates. Our little band might have continued jaunting from one hex to another in a narrow range surrounding Tarania, never venturing very far from our comfort zone. But Charlie wouldn't let it go. Although he was our leader, we couldn't go anywhere unless it was by consensus. Sue and Marie were willing to make the long and dangerous journey while Freddie and Bob were opposed, and the sides had good reason. Sue and Marie were young, healthy, and intrigued by the idea of seeing something no human had ever seen before. But neither Freddie or Bob believed that they could survive the twice-earth-normal gravity at Hex's equator. I was on the fence about the whole thing. I was young and healthy enough to make the trip, and just as curious as the women were to see what was there. On the other hand, I have a strong tendency towards self-preservation. Call me a coward, but I've always looked before I leaped. And most of the time after I've looked, I've chosen not to leap. And leaping aboard the next tram and punching in the coordinates for the nearest Donwee Pentagon didn't sound like a way of making sure I'd live to be old enough to tell about it. Charlie couldn't get his consensus, but that didn't stop him. Long after the fools left the Sajan Hex, he continued to talk about visiting the Pentagon, trying to sell Freddy, Bob, and me on the idea and as time went on I came to realize that he was going to make the trip regardless of whether the rest of us came with him or not. We journeyed south through the middle latitudes of Hex's northern hemisphere, riding the trams to habitats inhabited by races humans had met before. The Hajad Hex, naturally, was a regular port of call. They resembled tortoises who stood upright and had no shells, and generally liked humans so long as we displayed good manners. We had to wear respirators while we stayed overnight in one of their floating villages, But our hosts enjoyed our performances and restocked us with food and drink to take with us, which was customarily how joyriders got by when we were traveling. And then we moved on. Most of the Talus races were concentrated in the same quadrant of Hex's northern hemisphere. The Donnui didn't explain why they'd put everyone from the same part of the galaxy in the same general neighborhood, but I assumed that it was another effort on their part to keep the peace. In any case, it made things easier for joyriders. The arrangement meant that our travel time between hexes was generally measured in days or weeks rather than months or years, and that we didn't necessarily have to return to Tarania between visits. So, once we were through with the Hajjad, we decided to visit the Sorrenta. We found ourselves welcome at their habitat, so we didn't leave again for a couple weeks. After that, it was a long ride southeast to the Nord hex. They were more reluctant to accept visitors, and perhaps with good reason. Nordash had been wiped out only a few years earlier, when the rogue black hole called Kazimasta, passed through the HD-70642 system. And so the surviving Nord had become a race of galactic refugees. It was sad to see their hovels and camps, and the Nord really didn't want us there, so we stayed only a day and then boarded the tram again. This time to Arsashi Hex. Not very far from home, but still a place where we were unlikely to run into the Janus Company, since this was the habitat where Sean Carson's exploration team crash-landed during the Montero expedition, and the Arsashi had never completely forgiven him for that. All the while, Apache Charlie continued to make his pitch for traveling to the Don Wee Pentagon. The more he talked about it, though, the less rational his reasons for going there became. Charlie began to theorize that the equatorial pentagons, located as they were at equidistant points, might be less about geometric necessity and more about metaphysics. He suggested that the pentagons might, indeed, be focal points for some kind of mystic energy that the Donwe had learned to harness, a force that only an advanced K2 race such as themselves would understand. This was why it was important for us to see what was there. The future of humankind might depend on us solving this mystery. The more he talked, the less the rest of us were persuaded. Fred and Bob remained opposed, and after a while Marie began to lose enthusiasm as well. Sue remained loyal to Charlie for a while, but it wasn't very long before her interest began to wane. I think she also resented Charlie's belief that she would always side with him. As for me, like I said, I'm not a courageous man, and making a long, hazardous trip to a place that might kill me wasn't the sort of circumstance in which I wanted to find myself. Charlie didn't care. He decided to make the trip anyway, regardless of how the rest of the tribe voted. And so he did. In the weeks that followed, Apache Charlie devoted his free time toward mounting a solo expedition to the Donwe Pentagon. With the relentless determination of a mountaineer preparing to climb an unconquered peak, he trained and planned devoting long hours to a purpose that the rest of us had decided was obsessive and perhaps just a little mad. Joy riders necessarily spend quite a long time aboard trams, riding from one habitat to another. Although the lozenge-shaped vehicles achieve transit tube speeds of up to 300 miles per hour, it often takes days for them to reach their destinations. Charlie began using this time to prepare both body and mind for his trip. Exercise. Push-ups, sit-ups. Jogging in place, isometrics, yoga. Strengthening and toning his muscles so that they could hold up against the two G's of Hex's equatorial region. Charlie had always been a strong guy, but soon his body became lean and rock hard. Apache Charlie, the Indian athlete indeed. When he wasn't working out, he was studying the maps and notes he'd downloaded from Freddy's comp. At first, Freddy was reluctant to share this information. Joyrider navigators tend to guard their charts and logbooks, but... When he realized that Charlie wasn't going to insist that anyone come with him, he let Charlie take what he'd learned from other tribal navigators. And after a while, he even began helping him figure out the best route to the equator. To this day, I don't think Charlie could have reached the coordinates the Sajan had given him without Freddy's assistance. Unfortunately, Freddy thinks so too. And during our visits to alien habitats, Charlie acquired the supplies and materials he'd need. Joy Joyriders usually prefer barter to money, but... All of us carry specie cards that hex inhabitants use as currency. That's another reason why tribe members adopt traveling names. The Janus Company can't shut down our bank accounts if they don't know our true identities. So Charlie began buying and trading for those things he required. An Arsashi robe, warm even in temperatures well below freezing. A set of Sorrento hand tools, wonderfully compact and adaptable for any situation. A Tarak hunting knife. It's chitin-blade lightweight, razor-sharp, and supposedly unbreakable. Best of all, Charlie acquired a Korun exoskeleton, fashioned for one of those Olni slaves. The Koru were an alien race, who'd invaded a neighboring planet in their system and enslaved its inhabitants, the Olni, who resembled humans so closely that many xenologists wondered if interstellar panspermia was somehow involved. Subsequent comparison of human and Olni DNA have shown that our physical similarities are only coincidental. The Korun homeworld had a higher surface gravity than the Olnis, so the Koru had to provide the means for their slaves to stand erect and move about. As luck would have it, a Sorrento merchant had an exoskeleton big enough for Charlie. It cost Charlie his guitar, which he'd had for most of his life, but considered it a fair deal. To the rest of us, it was another indication how seriously he was taking all this. The day finally came when Charlie decided he was ready. We returned to Terrania, where we disembarked at a less-used tram station at the far end of the eastern bipod. After making our way back to New Salem, we stayed overnight at Charlie and Sue's seldom-used apartment, above a hardware store in the town center. That evening we drank wine and helped Charlie pack. Even with a 60-pound backpack he was going to be traveling light. But the route he and Freddie planned would take him through friendly hexes where he could count on acquiring food and water from the local residents. Hex's other inhabiting races understood joyriding better than our own. Can't we talk you out of this? Genghis Bob said as we had a late dinner together. Chicken chili with cornbread. After so many weeks riding the rails, it felt strange to be eating human food again. The Last Supper, Marie called it. Look, we're impressed. You don't have to prove to us that you can— I'm not trying to prove anything. Charlie was squatting beside his open pack, still trying to decide if he needed to bring two pairs of socks, or if he could get by with just one. This is just something I really want to do. I really need to do. Why? I asked. Isn't it enough to know that pentagons exist and leave it at that? He raised his eyes and fixed me with a disbelieving stare. Really, Jack? Really? He shook his head. Man, you might as well just stay home. Get off the rails, get a house, get married and raise kids. Get a normal life. It's safer that way. My face burned. I knew what he was saying. You're not cut out to be a joyrider. Sumi, too, came to my defense. He didn't mean it that way, Charlie. He just... We just... don't see the point in what you're doing. I love joyriding, too, but... Her voice trailed off, and she finished what she meant to say by reaching over to Charlie's hand. He quietly held it for a few moments before replying, It's not just about joyriding. It's about seeing something no one else has ever seen. He smiled and looked at all of us. Don't worry. I'm coming back. And when I do, I'll tell you what I saw. And make history as the first man to have seen it. Apache Charlie left the following morning shortly after the sky let in the light of a sun that never rose or set. We traveled with him by horse cart back to the tram station, where another bribe to the station guard got him to look the other way. The tribe watched as Charlie summoned a tram. A silver pill glided into the station and stopped at the platform, and he took a few minutes to give each of us a last hug. Then he carried his pack through the tram's open door, and through the windows we observed him entering the first fourteen sets of Donwe coordinates into the control panel keypad. The door whispered shut, and Charlie got in a final wave before the tram shushed down the maglev track and through the maw of the transit tube. The holy fools could have gone back out on the road again, but we didn't. Our leader was gone, and even though we knew that it might be weeks or months before we heard from him again, if ever, we decided to remain in Terrania while we did. So we voted to disband and go our separate ways, at least for a little while. I slept on a friend's couch for about a week until I found work in a vineyard in Nueva Italia that paid well enough for me to get a small apartment. The other employees liked hearing my travel stories, which is one thing that Joyriders brought back that the Janus Company couldn't claim, patent, and sell. After a while, I began to wonder whether I really wanted to do this anymore. Living the life of a wandering troubadour can be fun, but there's much to be said for a steady job in a permanent home. Perhaps the time had come for me to do just what Charlie had accused me of wanting— and give up joyriding altogether. I was still weighing this one, one afternoon while I was tying up grapevines. My phone chirped. It was Sue Me Too, with news I wanted to hear and also didn't. Charlie was back, but he was in the hospital and under arrest. I dropped what I was doing and hurried across town to Tarania General, where the reception desk confirmed that Charlie had been admitted as a patient. That itself took an effort. The receptionist had no record of anyone named Apache Charlie. And it wasn't until I carefully explained who he was and what he'd been doing that the clerk knew whom I was talking about. In doing so, I learned something else. Charlie's real name. I found Zeus Brandt lying in bed with his neck in a brace and an IV line feeding diluted sodium chloride into his arm. The constable standing outside the door let me in after Sue Me Too, or rather Sue Mosley, told him that I was a family friend. The other holy fools were on the way, but Zeus... Charlie quietly let me know that it would be best for everyone if we dropped our traveling names while we were here. The law had already busted one joyrider, no sense in letting them nab the rest of the tribe as well. Charlie told us what happened. There wasn't much to tell. During nearly a month of travel, he'd made his way southward toward the equator. His weight had steadily increased, although his body mass remained unchanged, and nearing the end he ran short of food and water. When he finally reached the Pentagon, he was dehydrated and barely able to walk or stand on his own. With the aid of the only exoskeleton, though, he was able to disembark from the tram when it pulled into a station at his destination. And, well, there was nothing there. Gazing up at us from the hospital bed, Charlie shrugged and immediately winced in pain. Ow. Shouldn't have done that. Anyway, there was nothing but darkness. There was an atmosphere I could breathe, but no light at all. Total darkness as far as I can see, and then... He sighed. <sighs> a light came on in the ceiling just a few feet away, and two done we were standing there. Big, ugly bastards, like what you'd get if you crossed a tarantula with a lobster. They were wearing hijab translators, and one of them said, You're not welcome here. Leave at once. Well, of course, I tried to reason with them, let them know I meant no harm, but they weren't having any of it. The Don made short work of Apache Charlie. Grasping his arms with their claws, they roughly pushed him back into the tram. In doing so, they caused him to twist his back. One of the Don We then entered a few set of coordinates into the control pad. The door shut, and the tram returned to the tunnel. In pain, fading in and out of consciousness, Charlie spent the next 28 hours aboard the tram as it traveled non-stop to another hexagon, somewhere northwest of the Donwe Pentagon. When it finally stopped, he found humans waiting for him. While Charlie was in transit, the Don Wee had contacted the Terrania government. A human has been caught trespassing where he shouldn't be, and would we please send a ship to pick him up at such-and-such such coordinates? Thank you, and don't let this happen again. That was the end of Zeus Brandt's career as Apache Charlie the Joyrider. He spent six months in jail— then got out and got a job as a consultant for the Janus Company. Yes, he went to work for them. Funny thing about Zeus, way back when he'd been chief petty officer aboard the Montero, before he had a falling out with Andromeda Carson and the other vets of the first expedition. None of us ever knew that. Guess he did have something to prove after all. He seems happy, though, now that he and Sue have settled down. And he did make his mark on history as the first human to reach Hex's equator. But I think he misses the old days. So do we all.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
3: There you go, done again, copyright, Alan Steeles. Alan, man, thank you so much. Oh, what a story. Just loved it to be quiet. Absolutely loved it. And Kyle, like I say, come back on the show. Thank you so much indeed. So, end of the month, Mr. G. J. Campanella. Jim.
2: Greetings and eukeretic jubilations, my subcutotic listeners. And welcome to this June 2017 Science News Update. I'm your host for this nefariously indelicate science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Welcome, everyone. Let's just get started. Back in August or September of 2014, I reported on a rather disturbing story out of Colombia, the country of Colombia. Diego Gomez, a conservation biology student at the University of Quindio in Colombia, forgive my pronunciation as usual, had posted another scientist's graduate thesis online. Not for any nefarious purposes, but simply to make it available to other scientists that might be interested. Unfortunately, this was seen as a copyright infringement by the country of Colombia. Also, Colombia does not view such things as we do in Europe and the U.S. They consider copyright violations to be criminal and not civil issues. Unfortunately, the author of the thesis posted by Gomez agreed with the government. He could have just ignored it, but instead he complained to the Colombian police about the posting. Poor Diego Gomez has been in jail for the last three years awaiting trial for committing a major crime. If you are a long-time listener to The Sofa and this podcast segment, you may be interested in this update on Diego Gomez's case. So, After three years of court proceedings in Colombia, a judge in Bogota finally acquitted Diego Gomez of charges that he violated copyright law. If he had been found guilty, 29-year-old Gomez could have faced at least another three years in prison and a fine of up to $6,000. Gomez's lawyer, Carolina Botera, says, This case must spark a serious debate over the necessity of open access. Today we celebrate that justice was made in an absurd case that could have set a bad precedent for access to knowledge in Colombia. Gomez stated way back in 2014, about this, he said this about the case, When uploading the thesis, I never thought I was violating any law. This type of literature is not of commercial interest, so I never thought I could do any damage to the author. On the contrary, I thought I was giving him benefits on sharing his work. Ironically, Colombia's copyright law came out of an agreement with the United States during the Clinton administration that was originally intended to bolster trade. Carolina Botera concludes, Diego's story serves as a cautionary tale of what can happen when copyright law is broadened through international agreements. But as is often the case when trade agreements are used to expand copyright law, the agreement only exported the U.S.'s extreme criminal penalties. It didn't export the broad fair use provisions that you and the states have that protect citizens. Unquote. Next story, sugar. Do women and men eat sugar differently? Who knows? It's a darn fine question, and Dr. Carolina Lopez Rubalcaba from the National Polytechnic Institute of Mexico City tried to answer it last month on a paper that was published in the journal Frontiers of Nutrition. So in the. US there are approximately 30 million people that suffer from eating disorders and more than about a third of them are obese. and a multitude of factors contribute to this, including genetics, uh, economic status, environment, mental health, uh, existing health conditions, use of medications, Well, Lopez Rubalcaba's study shows that gender might also influence whether somebody is more likely to binge when eating high-sugar foods. She says, quote, Binge eating is a new disorder that's not quite well understood compared to anorexia and bulimia and other eating disorders. Overconsumption of sugar can trigger reward systems in the brain in the same way as an addictive drug and there are no good pharmacological treatments yet, unquote. Lopez Rubalcaba used two strains of rats to better understand an organism's predisposition to acquire sugar binge-like behaviors based on gender. Her team monitored consumption of a 30% sucrose solution given to rats for two hours a day, three days a week for four weeks. Additionally, she measured how inducing sugar binge-like behaviors influenced anxiety-like behaviors by putting the rats through a maze test and monitoring chemical changes in their brains, specifically in areas related to anxiety and ingestion behaviors. Finally, her team tested whether the drug fluoxetine, Prozac to you and me, which is often used to treat binge eating disorders could stop sugar binge-like behaviors. After completing the behavioral assessments, the researchers examined the brains of the rats, and they found that animals that developed sugar binge-like behavior showed signs of anxiety in the maze test, but they also showed that female rats seemed to respond differently to the sucrose solution in one of the rat strains. Introducing the sucrose solution prompted changes of noradrenaline in the brains of these female rats, which were more susceptible to developing sugar binge like behaviors. Of course, as I remind you, with every nutritional study that involves animals, remember they are not human, and it is not clear here whether this study is telling us much about human sugar binging behavior. Lopez Rubalcava says, quote, By studying the disorder in the laboratory, we can examine its biological basis, we can test and analyze and determine how it's regulated, and we can study new pharmacological treatments. For example, right now, we are exploring the effects of phytochemicals from plants that are used for treating eating disorders in our animal models, unquote. Next story. Well, the next story is an astronomy story. But what it really is, is about the possibility of life elsewhere in the universe. More than just astronomy. Dr. Rafael Martin Dominic from the Centro de Astrobiologia in Madrid, Spain, detected in the constellation Ophiuchus, about 400 light years away, an organic molecule similar to the building blocks of proteins. It wasn't amino acids, but it was close. Methyl isocyanate. It's related in structure to superglue of all things and also related in structure to amino acids. And he found it present in the dust surrounding baby stars that will one day, well, resemble our own sun, Sol. This result supports the theory that life's raw ingredients were spawned from the formation of the solar system. The story was reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society this month and martin dominich says quote, "either life originated completely on the surface of the earth or some building blocks were formed in the solar nebula prior to the formation of the earth and delivered by comets to our planet where biochemical reactions continued leading to the formation of the first living organisms the detection of this molecule points toward the latter theory" unquote. martin dominich cautions in the article against jumping to conclusions. He says we don't know the chemical process or if methyl isocyanate is crucial or even how peptides could form from it. All right. Upward and onward. Let's talk about juice. The American Academy of Pediatrics updated their official ruling on fruit juice, recommending none of the sweet stuff before the age of one. The guidelines were just published this June in the issue of pediatrics, and the recommendation is more restrictive than the previous recommendation, which advised no juice before the age of six months. The newest guidelines say that juice should be kept from kids until after one year or older. The article says that actual fruit is way more nutritious than the sweet, fiberless liquid that we give our kids. The AAP says that babies under one year old should be getting breast milk or formula until they're ready for solid foods. After their first birthdays, any extra liquids they drink should be water or milk. Whole fruits, or mashed up fruit, have more fiber and protein than juice. The only benefit that juice has over its former whole form is that it's way easier for the kids to slurp down. The AP gave additional advice for parents who... Decide to actually give juice to children age 1 and older. First, don't give kids juice in bottles or sippy cups, especially at bedtime. That encourages kids to drink juice for long periods of time, prolonging sugar baths for their teeth. Yum, yum. Second, look out for unpasteurized juice. Harmful forms of E. coli bacteria can appear in unpasteurized apple cider, for example, posing a particular risk to very young children. Third, give one to three-year-old kids no more than about four ounces of juice a day. That recommendation drops two ounces from earlier guidance that limited the juice between four and six ounces daily. Children four to six years old can get that extra two ounces back with a daily limit of between four and six ounces. Finally, make sure that kids are drinking a 100% juice, not those sneaky cocktails or Drinks that you find at the grocery store. Those are nutritional wastelands and they're packed with even more sugar and devoid of any nutrients at all. They may as well be drinking sugar water, period. All right. Next story. Another astronomy story. The Milky Way galaxy is literally in the middle of nowhere. If indeed the Milky Way Exists in the biggest cosmic void ever observed. That could actually solve a puzzling mismatch between the ways to measure how fast the universe is expanding. Observations of 120,000 galaxies bolstered the Milky Way's loner status. This data was presented by Dr. Benjamin Hoshite on June 7th at the American Astronomical Society conference in Austin, Texas. Horscheidt measured how the density of galaxies changed with distance from the Milky Way. In agreement with an earlier study, he found that the Milky Way has far fewer neighbors than it actually should. There's a rise in density about 1 billion light-years out, suggesting that the Milky Way resides in an abyss of about 2 billion light-years in width. Simulations of how cosmic structures form suggest that most galaxies clump along dense filaments of dark matter, which are separated by vast cosmic voids. If the Milky Way lives in one of those vast cosmic voids, it could help to explain why the universe seems to be expanding at different rates, depending on how it's measured. Measurements based on the cosmic microwave background, that is the earliest light in the universe suggests one rate of expansion, while measurements of nearby supernovas suggest a faster rate of expansion. Hochschild says, quote, Those nearby supernovas could be feeling an extra gravitational pull from all the matter at the edges of the void. The actual expansion rate is probably the slower one measured in the universe's early light. If you don't account for the void effects, you could mistake this relationship to indicate that there is too much expansion, unquote. So we used to think that humans were the center of all creation. Now it turns out that God literally stuck us in a massive void along with the rest of our galaxy. You have to wonder whether there was not some grand theological reason for doing that, like keeping humans humble once they found out, or whether God just decided we were just too dangerous to be anywhere near the rest of creation gotta wonder. Anyway, for the last story of the night, we're going to have our traditional weird jaunt into reproductive biology. So, at least one species of fish don't seem to need females to reproduce. So, there was a paper last month published in the Journal of the Royal Society called Royal Society Open Science. The work comes out of the lab of Dr. Morgado Santos at the University of Lisbon. So, when males reproduce without females, this is called androgenesis. And until now, androgenesis has not been seen naturally in vertebrates, although it has been observed in nonvertebrates. Orgado Santos has observed androgenesis in a fish called Squalius albernoides. The paper never mentions if the thing has a common name, so I don't know if it's called anything else besides that. At any rate, he says, quote, I was very surprised. We were studying the genetics of squalus in the wild, and we were collecting specimen. We did the genetic analysis, and I thought at first that maybe it was a mistake, and we had captured the father of the fish for the previous generation. However, when we examined the animal's mitochondrial DNA, which can only be inherited from the mother's egg, we found it differed from the father's. We had no choice but to conclude it was definitely an androgenetic individual. Unquote. While females of many species, including some vertebrates, are well known to be able to reproduce themselves without any input from a male, and that's a process called parthenogenesis, it was thought for a long time that clonal reproduction by males was impossible, since they can't actually have offspring. However, it was eventually found that males in a handful of species, certain types of ants and freshwater clams, for example, can use a surrogate mother to clone themselves. And yes, that is as confusing as it sounds. But because there are so few examples of androgenesis, it's not always clear how the phenomenon arises in some species the males are thought to produce the sperm with twice the normal genetic content that is their diploid not haploid and the genetic content of the egg is either absent or eliminated after fertilization so only technically are these organisms actually cloning themselves they still need eggs to do this alternatively it is possible that a normal sperm haploid can fertilize an egg with either an absent or eliminated genome And the male genome then replicates, or the two sperm can co-fertilize an egg that doesn't have a genome at all. Parthenogenesis is much easier to explain, and no male sperm are needed at all for that. At any rate, Morgado Santos says he has no idea which of the hypothetical processes that I just described may have taken place in his fish. Those fish he is studying are rather strange because they are a hybrid species. Squalius albernoides is a result of a natural hybridization event between another fish, Squalius peronaceus, and now an extinct species of fish, Anacepris hispanica. Members of S. albernoides are generally odd anyway, insofar as males and females of the species are not predictably all diploid. Remember, Humans get half their DNA from mom and half their DNA from dad to give you two copies of all your chromosomes. That's the definition of diploid. Morgado Santos says, the species seems to be an assorted mix of diploids, triploids, and tetraploids, meaning that they carry different combinations and copy numbers of the two genomes of the original species. We had been studying an isolated population of albernoides in the hopes of figuring out the complexities of reproduction in these strange fish, when, by chance, we found that male offspring that had an exact genomic replica of its father. Unquote. Although the event was clearly rare, just one offspring out of two hundred and sixty one analyzed, Morgado Santos seems to think at even that low proportion, the androgenetic process could be important for hybrid speciation. That is the emergence of a new species from the hybrid. As I always tell my classes, asexual reproduction has its advantages because you don't have to worry about mating or the entire wearisome process of mate selection. Yes, I'm talking to you speed daters, users of eHarmony.com, and even those planning your weddings. You know what I mean when I say, imagine how much time could be saved without the process of dating and mating. Solo reproduction does have its appeals, don't it? However, it has major drawbacks in the long run and is ultimately a risky strategy for any species. Clonal reproduction reduces variation, and variation is needed for future generations to be genetically strong. Lots of clonal species have gone extinct when their environment has altered, and reproduction was inhibited, and that lack of variation may explain why androgenesis is so rare in nature. Morgado Santos finishes by saying, We are still uncertain how important our observations are. From one isolated androgenic event in S. albernoides, it is unclear what this means in the greater sphere of biology. Nonetheless, we hope that readers of our work will pay more attention to unusual reproductive modes. There are a lot more of them than one would think, but people just tend to ignore them. Unquote. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Watch that juice intake. Watch that sugar intake, whether you're male or female. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time. This is Jim Campanella.
3: I thank you, Jim. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. So that is today's show. Put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Thank you so much to everyone. Yes, and until, I guess, until next week, just like you say, good night from
0: me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm rooting, waiting to be found. And I'm building Going slowly, won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say. Rocket ships, I need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there, I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there.
4: you <laughs>